Welcome to Historically Haunted, a podcast that takes a look at a historical location that also has a haunted reputation. So come with me as together we enter the strange and creepy world of the unexplained and keep history fun along the way. Historically Haunted. I am your host, Ariel, and today I will be doing another listener suggestion episode, and this location is the state of Maine. This location was suggested by Tracy, and instead of just doing one single location, I will be covering a bunch of different haunted hotspots in the state. Before I get started, I wanted to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays. I hope that you guys have been enjoying the month of December and that the holidays are going well so far. My voice might sound a little tired today and a little raspy, but that's because I started working again. I'm just doing some fill-in jobs here and there. I put in a resume at a local boutique store and they ended up needing me a lot more in this month of December than I thought they would. So my voice is a little bit tired because I haven't used it as much as I have done since before the pandemic started. So if my voice sounds a little raspy, be tired, that's why. Before I start, as always, I wanted to thank everyone for your kind comments and messages. It really means so much to me to hear from all of you, so thank you all so much. I also wanted to thank everyone who has ever left me a review on iTunes. I have two new people to thank today, and these are usernames, so I'm sorry if I get them wrong, but um, the first one is SK1885, and the other one is Vamprexa, I think is how you say that. Um, so I wanted to say thank you guys so much for leaving me those very nice reviews. Leaving my show a review on iTunes is a quick and free way to help support the show. The more reviews I receive, it will help the show grow and also it will help it pop up when other people search for new paranormal podcasts to try. And as always, a huge thank you to my wonderful Patreons. I have some new Patreons to thank and give a shout out to and they are Brandon, Gotham, Taylor, and Tegan. Thank you so much, everybody. For just a dollar a month, you can get access to bonus episodes that I make whenever I have extra time, which sadly right now hasn't been lately, but anyway, you also get photos of the historical places that I talk about on my episodes, and you will get a thank you card and logo sticker in the mail after your first payment goes through. I have a link to my Patreon page down below in the show notes if anyone is interested, and it really does help support me because I do have monthly fees that I have to pay for, for sound effects, music, like when my computer crashed, I was able to get a new one, that kind of thing. It really does help the show continue, and I really do appreciate it. So thank you to anyone, even if you've just donated a buck. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. Okay, so that is all the housekeeping I had for today, so let's get this episode started. The state of Maine is the last state on the right side of the map of the United States. Maine is next to the Canadian border, and it is famous for its beautiful forests, but the state also has a haunted reputation. Civilizations lived here thousands of years before Europeans ever came to the continent, and some believe that this disturbed ancient energy, and this ancient energy is the driving force for much of the paranormal activity. We will find out its history and more after our monstrous moment. 
This week's monstrous moment is the Pugwaji. A Pugwaji is said to be a magical humanoid race that lives in North America. The legend of the Pugwaji comes to us from Algonquian folklore. Also known as magical little people of the forest, the Pugwaji likes to hang out in forests and swampy areas. Many cultures across the world have legends of magical little people. In Europe, they have stories like gnomes and fairies. In my Hawaii episode, I talked about the Menahune, and in Ireland, they have stories of leprechauns. I also discussed the Tommyknockers in episode 24, and those are said to be a race of little people who live in caves, and Tommyknockers come to us from German folklore. Because there are stories of little people all over the world, it does make you wonder if there is any truth to these ancient stories. The Pugwaji is described as being about as tall as knee-high if they were standing next to a human. They have large hands and feet, rounded shoulders, and appear to be stooping down when they walk. Artist renderings of these creatures show them looking like a bipedal creature with grayish-blue skin, and they have porcupine quills on its head and down its back. They are quite agile despite their stooped appearance. The Native American tribes that told tales of the Pugwudgie lived in the northeastern U.S. and southeastern Canada. Tribes that lived in the Great Lake region also told stories about the Pugwudgie. The Pugwudgie legend varies between tribes, but the overall consensus seemed to be that if you ever run into one, just ignore it as best you can and keep moving. That's because Pugwudgies can become dangerous. Their powers vary from tribe to tribe, but here are some things that the Pugwudgie are known for. They can shapeshift and become invisible to hide from humans. Some legends say that it can harm a human just by its gaze. Some stories also have the Pugwudgie as being able to turn into a ball of light to travel. This way, their true form won't be seen by humans. The Pugwudgie is also known to be quite the trickster. They can take people's things who wrong them. They can lure humans into the woods and leave them lost and sometimes leave them to die. They also have been known to push humans off of cliffs. They have also been known to follow and stalk humans only to mess with them along their entire journey. According to legend, Pugwudgies carry spears, sharp knives, and a bow with poisonous arrows. And they will shoot that arrow at humans that get too close or if humans have wronged them in some way. However, other stories have the Pugwudgie as being mostly helpful toward humans. Some stories speak of them helping humans who become lost in the woods. However, even these stories come with a warning. They are easily offended and if you do offend them, they can become violent or even follow you and then kidnap your children. Some stories even say that the Pugwudgie can confund humans by either erasing their memories, making them really confused, or at least making them forget that they had even an encounter with the Pugwudgie. According to the Wampanoag legend, Pugwudgies used to get along with the Wampanoag tribe until the people began to show more affection towards their giant creation god, Moshop. The Pugwudgies felt that they had done more to help the humans than Moshop did, and they felt forgotten by the tribe and they tried to prove that they should get more affection. They did this by overwhelmingly trying to help the humans, but this backfired because their trickster nature got the better of them, and they could not help themselves by playing pranks on the tribe members while they were also trying to do everything they could think of to help. 
This annoyed the Wampanoag people, who became angry that they were in the way. This, in turn, made the Pugwudgies get angry, who started to become more malevolent and started to play harsher pranks to try to scare the Wampanoag people. The Wampanoag people decided that they had had enough of the Pugwudgies, and they went to Moshop's wife to ask for help. She ordered Moshop, the giant, to go to the village and round up as many Pugwudgies as he could. He then went, picked them up, and flung them around the continent. They landed helter-skelter from New England to the Great Lakes, and some even landed in Delaware. After this, the god and goddess were satisfied, and they decided to go on a bit of a vacation to celebrate what they thought was the end of the Pugwudgies bothering the Wampanoags. However, while they were away, the furious Pugwudgies snuck back into the villages of the Wampanoag tribes and burned their homes, kidnapped their children, and left people with no memories to wander to their deaths. Moshop and his wife heard of the trouble and Moshop sent his five sons to deal with the problem. However, the Pugwudgies managed to trick all five of them and later kill them. When Moshop and his wife found out, they went into a rampage and together they went back and they killed all the Pugwudgies that they could get their hands on. According to legend, even with this massive attack from the god and goddess giant, many Pugwudgies managed to escape the area and today they still live in hiding in forests and swamplands across America. Many people have claimed to see these creatures to this day. The area that is most famous for Pugwudgie activity is the Freetown Fall River State Forest in Massachusetts. This area is a 227-acre Wadapaw reservation that belongs to the Wampanoag Nation. Something that I think is really cool, whether it's real or not, is that the state forest rangers actually put up Pugwudgie crossing signs in the area, and I'm going to post a photo of that on my Patreon page. I also found a really interesting eyewitness account from an article that was written on the Astonishing Legends website. And as always, I have a link down below to all of my sources, so that will be down there in the Pugwudgie section. But according to this account, there was a woman named Joan who was walking her dog down a trail in the forest. And apparently she did this very often and she was just out enjoying her walk when suddenly her dog took off running off the trail. She didn't want to drop the leash, so she ran with her dog until it suddenly stopped short. When Joan looked up to see what her dog was chasing, she was stunned to see a small humanoid creature looking back at her. She said it was about two feet tall, had grayish skin, and short legs. It also had large lips, and she described it as having a canine-like nose, but with a human face. Apparently this creature didn't move, it just stared at them until her dog turned and ran back up the hill to the trail. Obviously this freaked Joan out and she said that she tried to forget about the whole encounter, but it seems that the Pugwudgie did not want her to forget because Joan claims that it followed her home and in the middle of the night it appeared outside of her bedroom window to wake her up. This eventually stopped but she said that she will never forget the experience. And this leads to the question, since it seems like in all these legends, Pugwudgies don't like humans, but they also don't want us to forget they're there. So I wonder if they almost need the energy to survive, like they need the knowledge or the legends to stay relevant maybe? What do you think about the legend of the Pugwudgie? Personally, I don't think I would want to go out looking for them because I have enough memory problems on my own without the help of being confunded by a Pugwudgie.
never been shy about talking about my struggles with dyslexia, but I also think it is really important for people to know the signs so that they can get help. Dyslexia is a learning disability that is not well known, but it is way more common than you might think. In fact, one in 10 people are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some of the common signs is late talking, learning new words slowly, writing letters backwards, and a delay in reading and spelling. There is no cure for this, and although it's challenging, it does not mean that we are stupid because dyslexia does not affect intelligence. It is better for children to get diagnosed early so that they can get accommodations they need in school. If you are an adult and think that you might have it, it is never too late to ask for help. One website I find helpful is dyslexiaaid.org, where you can find out some great information. Understanding and educating others about dyslexia is just as important as diagnosing someone with it. The state of Maine is famous for its lobster and ocean fishing. People come to this state not just for the lobster, but for its beautiful forests, picturesque bays, and quaint small towns. The forests are so famous that the state's nickname is the Pine Tree State. Maine is also rich in history. During the Revolutionary War, the first naval battle between the British and the Patriots happened outside of Machias Harbor, ending in a British defeat. In addition to the Revolutionary War, Maine played an important role in the French and Indian War and the War of 1812, as well as the Civil War. Maine is also known for its haunted history. Today's episode is going to be a tour of many of the haunted hotspots found within the state. So before we get into our ghostly locations, let's start at the beginning, over 12,000 years ago. The jagged coastline of Maine has hundreds of bays and harbors and about 2,000 islands that were formed by glaciers from the last ice age. The earliest people who lived in modern-day Maine were descendants of ice age hunters known as the red paint people. They were named this because they used red clay to line their graves of their dead, and these graves date back to 3000 BC. Evidence of the first two Native American tribes in the area date back to 1000 BC. The Mi'kmaq people lived in eastern Maine and New Brunswick, Canada. The Abenakis outnumbered the Mi'kwaq and they lived off the land by farming and fishing. Over time, there were dozens of tribes that lived in the area. These tribes mostly spoke the Algonquian language and in addition to the two original tribes, other prominent tribes were the Penobscot and the Maliseet, and I hope I pronounced all those right. If I didn't, I do apologize. The first Europeans thought to reach the main coastline were the Vikings, led by Leif Erikson in 1000 AD. However, this claim is disputed among some historians due to the lack of evidence. In 1498, Italian explorer John Cabot sailing for the British possibly could have seen the coastline of Maine, but again, due to lack of evidence, no one is really sure. But the first official European settlement was the Popham Colony in 1607 by the Plymouth Company. 
George Popham led an expedition to form a new colony in the main area. However, they were not prepared for the harsh winter and they were forced to head back to England on one of their supply ships. The English kept trying to establish colonies in the area, but they struggled for many years. Finally, in the mid-1700s, they were successful and officially became part of the Massachusetts colony. After the Revolutionary War, the settlers of Maine did not like being a part of Massachusetts. They particularly became upset during the War of 1812 because they felt unprotected. At this time, Boston was the largest city in the New England states. The people of Maine felt that all of the war's resources were going to Boston and leaving the smaller population of Maine to for themselves. While the people of Maine began their push for statehood, they had to wait because their requests were not met until it benefited the North. This next part can be a little bit confusing for people who didn't grow up in the U.S., so I'm going to give you a quick rundown of what was going on during the 1800s. So basically at this time, the U.S. was starting its slow buildup to the Civil War. When the U.S. defeated the British and became its own country, many of the southern colonies now turned states became economically dependent on slavery for their labor-intensive crops. Slavery was going out of style in the North because the North had factories and they did not rely on free labor to drive their economics. This started a rift between the North and the South. Leading into the 1800s, the North began seeing slavery as an immoral evil and the abolitionist movement began. The South began to feel threatened and feared that they would be outnumbered in Congress if new free states were added to the country. In the beginning, the U.S. had an equal number of free and slave states, 11 free and 11 slave. So when Missouri wanted to become a state, this would tip the balance one way or the other. In 1818, the Missouri Territory officially applied for statehood as a slave state. This worried the North, who were also afraid that they would lose their power in Congress. So as a solution to maintain the balance, the Missouri Compromise was created. U.S. Congress passed a law that added two states to the Union. One was Missouri as a slave state, and the other was Maine as a free state. And that was how Maine officially became a state. Obviously, there is way more than what I said that caused the Civil War to happen. So if you want to learn more about the Civil War history, I would really recommend actually checking out the YouTube channel called Oversimplified. He has the best way of explaining everything without it being too much information at the same time, and he had some pretty funny jokes in there, but he's serious about the history part, so yeah, I would definitely go check them out if you want to learn more about that. When the Civil War did start in 1816, Maine fought for the Union. When the Civil War did start in 1816, Maine fought for the Union. About 73,000 men from Maine fought, and over 7,000 of them died. Two famous generals from Maine fought in the Civil War, Oliver Otis Hayward and Joshua L. Chamberlain. General Chamberlain was considered a war hero of the Battle of Little Round Top. He was also commander of Union troops when Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox. After the war, Chamberlain became governor of Maine. General Hayward did well at the Battle of Gettysburg and Bull Run. After the war, he was commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau was a U.S. government agency that helped freed slaves after the war. 
The group decided to start a seminary in Washington, D.C. to train African-American preachers. By 1867, they decided to expand and create a liberal arts university. The board decided to name the university after General Howard in his honor. Howard also supported the idea of a school and helped get resources for the university. Howard University is still going strong today, with many of its graduates becoming prominent figures in American history. After the Civil War, Maine saw growth in the textile and leather industries. After Thomas Edison created the light bulb and created hydroelectric power plants, Maine built several along their largest rivers to produce power for the towns. By the early 20th century, pulp and paper mills became a large part of Maine's economy. Small family farms were replaced by large potato, dairy, and poultry farms. And after World War II, Maine slowly became a tourist destination and today its popularity has only grown. Now that we have a quick overview of the state of Maine, it's time to talk about some of the haunted places that Maine has to offer. First on our tour is Fort Knox. No, not the one that guards the country's gold. This Fort Knox is located on the narrows of the Penobscot River. Construction on Fort Knox began in 1844 and finished in 1869, leaving the fort only 90% completed. The main building was the first granite fort built in Maine. It is 252 feet long and 146 feet wide. The fort could hold over 130 cannons if necessary. The fort was built to stop a British invasion if needed. However, the fort never saw battle. The fort was named after General Henry Knox. General Knox was the first U.S. Secretary of War. While part of the fort was still being built, the Civil War began. During the war, the fort was used to house and train new Union troops. When the Spanish-American War began in 1898, 500 troops were briefly stationed at the fort, but they did not see any military action. After the war, the fort was left to a single sergeant caretaker. The fort also became a storehouse for naval mines for a short while. Then, in 1923, the U.S. government put the 125-acre fort up for sale. The state of Maine purchased it in 1943 and preserved it. The fort was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1969, and on December 30, 1970, the fort was named a National Historic Landmark. While the fort never saw any action, and historical records show that no major military deaths happened at the fort, that is not true for the people who built it. When the fort was being built, men had to move heavy granite slabs with equipment that was not up to the task. Accidents were common, and by the end, an estimated 100 workers died. Another notable death was Leopold Hagee. Leopold was the sergeant caretaker who was left at the fort after the military stopped using it to house troops. Leopold would walk the halls of the fort every day to make sure that there was no one trespassing. One day, people that lived near the fort noticed that the flag was not flying like it did every day. 
When they went to investigate, they found Leopold dead. Leopold's ghost has been seen walking the halls going about his duties. People who have felt his presence also feel as if they are not wanted or that they need to get out of the area quickly. This is probably just Leopold still trying to go about his rounds and doing the job he was given, even from the afterlife. In the hallways of the fort, people claim to hear the loud sound of disembodied boots walking down the hallways. Tour guides and historians have also heard their names being called when there is no one in the area. B battery was used to store weapons and powder kegs. It is also a secluded spot that could be used if you wanted to do something and have no one else notice. It was here that a soldier was shot to death by his commanding officer for insubordination. After this, people have claimed that the energy is dark dark and oppressive. Two-Step Alley found at the back of the fort is also haunted. It is called Two-Step Alley because of the way the fort is built into the hillside. This section had to account for the slope. Every eight feet, there are two steps that lead to another flat eight-foot section. This was made so that the hallway would have a gradual climb up the hill. The reason it was made this way was so soldiers could have a flat place to station themselves if they were under siege. Along this hallway are rifle slits. If the fort was under siege, soldiers could stick their rifles out of these slits and fire upon the enemy. This is also the area where people see Leopold's apparition the most. He will walk up and down the hallway and vanish when he gets to the end. People also see doors shut and open on their own, and they hear the sound of footsteps walking down the hallway behind them. The casemate is famous for a photo that was taken in the area. In this photo, you can see what looks like a whole ghost family standing on the left side of the picture. There is also a ghost of a little girl named Elizabeth. She has been known to interact with EMF detectors and move objects. EVPs have been captured of her voice as well. Other claims at the fort include being touched by unseen hands, having hats being knocked off of guests, unexplained sounds along with shadow figures have been seen. Ghost hunters have captured entities on thermal imaging cameras. Various EVPs have been captured and they have had REM pod activity. Destination Fear came to the fort for season three and they did have some interesting interactions. Bucksport, Maine is thought to be one of the most haunted towns in the state. The town is located along the narrows of the Penobscot River. The red paint people lived here 5,000 years ago, and later the Abenaki people settled here. British settlers came to the area in 1762, and a sawmill was built in 1763. By 1775, there were 21 families living in the area. During the Revolutionary War, the Penobscot Bay saw some heavy fighting. An American naval armada of 44 ships sailed from Boston with the goal of reclaiming parts of Maine from the British. The fighting lasted from July 24th to August 16, 1779. The battle took place on land and at sea. The Patriots outnumbered the British with a total of 3,000 men, 19 warships, and 25 supply ships. The British only had about 700 men and 10 warships, but due to poor leadership from the Patriots, the U.S. suffered an embarrassing defeat. In the end, all of their warships and supply ships were either sunk, damaged, or captured. 
474 men were dead, wounded, or captured. This was the worst U.S. naval loss until Pearl Harbor. At some point during the British occupation, the town of Bucksport was burned. After the war, the town was rebuilt, and during the War of 1812, the town was once again occupied by the British. The early economy was fishing, shipbuilding, and farming. Eventually, paper mills became a major source of jobs, and today it is a tourist town. People come to enjoy the outdoor recreation and and shopping, but it is also known for its ghosts. There are many legends and strange true events that have happened in the town that it's hard to know where to begin, but I am going to start with the legend of Jonathan Buck. Jonathan Buck was the founder of the original settlement. He was a Revolutionary War hero, and after the town was burned, he returned to help rebuild it. After this, the town was named after him. When Buck passed away, he was buried at Buck Cemetery. And if you look at Buck's tomb today, you will see a stain in the shape of a leg. It is this stain that has sparked an interesting legend. The legend goes like this. A woman who was accused of witchcraft was ordered by Buck to be burned at the stake. Some legends also say that this woman was his mistress and he had her killed because she came around asking for help to raise their illegitimate son. Other versions have the woman being hung and not burned. Either way, just before she died, she cursed Buck by saying that his tomb will forever bear the mark of a witch's foot so everyone will know that he killed a woman. After Buck's death, the stain in the shape of a foot appeared, and no matter how many times the family has cleaned the tomb or even replaced it, the stain has come back. While this makes for a good story, historical records cannot confirm that there was ever a witch burning or even a hanging of a witch, but the story is still interesting. Up next is the haunted paper mill in Bucksport. The main Seaboard Paper Company opened in November of 1930 and it made its first paper on Thanksgiving Day. But it's what's buried underneath that has caused people in the town to think that it's haunted or even cursed. The mill is located on the site of the first archaeological dig in the state. When they first broke ground, they found a large burial ground that was used by the red paint people. It is for that reason that people think that the building was cursed. Ever since its opening, strange things have happened, from bad accidents to fires to even bad business. Some shady after-hours dealings happened on the property as well. Many people think that this cursed land is what led to the downfall of the mill and that's why it closed in 2014 and is now being torn down. For those of you who enjoy the outdoors, there are a few haunted trails located around the state of Maine that you might want to explore. Up first is Silver Lake Trails in Bucksport. There are six interconnecting trails located in the 67-acre park that take you down to Silver Lake and along its shoreline. In all, the trails total only about two miles. However, they are said to be haunted by the ghost of a murder victim named Sarah Ware. Sarah disappeared on September 17, 1898 while running errands. The community didn't begin searching for her until two weeks later. She was found in a pasture on the property of Mrs. Miles, whom she worked for as a maid. It was obvious that there was foul play because her skull was badly damaged. When her body was lifted, her head reportedly fell off. Her death was ruled a homicide, but the person or persons responsible were never brought to justice. One suspect was charged, but he was found innocent, and the murder was never solved. 
Sarah's headless body was buried in Silver Lake Cemetery. In the 1930s, a dam was built to enlarge the lake because a paper mill needed more water. The businesses promised to remove the graves, but as we learn from history, that almost never happened. They usually just moved the tombstones and pretended that they had moved the bodies with them. The tombstones are now on a hill overlooking the lake. Supposedly, Sarah's body was moved to Oak Hill Cemetery and placed in the family's plot of her husband's family. Her grave is next to her husband and daughter. So what happened to Sarah's head? One explanation is that it was kept for evidence since the murder was never solved. There is a claim that it was being kept in the Ellsworth Courthouse for 100 years until 1998, when it was buried with Sarah. Some people think that her body was never moved from the old Silver Lake Cemetery and that she is wandering near the lake looking for her head. People have claimed to see her headless ghost near the shores on foggy nights. Another spooky hike can be found at Catherine's Mountain in East Maine. The locals call it Catherine's Hill. It is only 942 feet above sea level, but it does provide great views of lakes, ponds, and other mountains. The trail is located off of the Blackwoods Scenic Byway. This is a tale of another headless ghost. The trail is said to be haunted by Headless Catherine, a woman who died in a car accident in the area. The ghost has been seen walking on Blackwoods Road between Franklin and Cherryfield. People claim that the ghost also has been seen along the shores of Fox Pond, which is not far from the road. Others claim that she haunts the slope of Catherine Mountain. Midcoast, Maine offers a one-mile steep hike to Maiden Cliff, which is 800 feet above Maguntacook Lake, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. The trail is located in Camden Hill State Park. People believe that the trail is haunted by the ghost of a young girl who fell to her death. A large white metal cross was erected in her honor, and an engraved granite stone plaque tells the story. It says, quote, on May 7, 1864, this 12-year-old farmer's daughter fell to her death from this cliff. According to legend, she was here as a member of a maying party and fell trying to catch her windblown hat. This cross is erected in her memory. There are stories of people spotting an apparition of a young woman walking along the cliffs wearing a 1800s dress and sun hat. North of Brunswick, Maine is a trail that starts in the town of Randolph. It is a public walking and bicycle trail that was built on the former tracks of the Kennebec Central Railroad. The railroad was built in the 1800s and was used until the early 1900s. It was built to reach the first veterans hospital at Togus. The trail is called the Old Narrow Gauge Volunteer Trail. Locals have been telling stories of scary experiences along the trail for years. People claim to see shadow people and glow orbs floating through the forests. Some have heard disembodied voices and others have heard footsteps and reported a bad feeling of dread. There is also a spirit named Bicycle Larry. He lived in Randolph and disappeared in the fall of 2004 and has never been found. Locals think that his ghost is trying to show people where his body is buried.
Next, we have a haunted firehouse. The engine house is located in downtown Auburn, Maine. This two-story brick building was constructed in 1879 to replace a smaller wooden structure. The front of the station originally had four engine bays. The firehouse was in active service until 1971. Today, it is used as a commercial and retail space. Two of the engine bays are now used as entrances for shoppers, and the other two bays still have their classic garage doors. The building was placed on the National Registry of Historic Places in 1978. People who work in the building today claim that it is haunted by a firefighter who either fell or jumped from the tower to his death. His ghost likes to open and close doors, and even once a worker got trapped in the bathroom. She claimed that every time she went to open the door, it would only open a few inches before shutting hard in her face. There was no one else in the building with her at this time, and it took her several tries until she finally managed to escape. Up next is the Great Falls School Auditorium. This used to be named Lewiston Fall Academy in 1834 after local resident Edward Little donated nine acres and money for construction. The name was changed to Edward Little High School in 1849 after Little's death. The school served the community until a new Edward Little High School was built in 1961. The original school is now used as an auditorium and has been renamed to the Central School Auditorium. The community Little Theater has been performing here since 1941. In 1981, the Auburn School Department agreed to allow the theater group to keep performing here and also renovate the theater. People who work in the building say that the building has a weird energy. People say that it feels like they are never alone when walking around the empty halls. Strange sounds have been heard down dark hallways, and the basement is a creepy place. Workers hear strange banging noises when there is no one else in the space. A news crew station from the station News Center, Maine, went to the school to investigate during October, and they actually caught a loud banging noise coming from the basement. When the reporter asked if the stage manager who was with them heard what she heard, he kind of shrugged and said that's what he hears all the time, and they have no idea what it is. He also said that his workers refused to go down into the basement alone. People have reportedly seen shadow figures, apparitions, heard footsteps behind them, heard running up staircases. Also, there's a staircase in the building that apparently shadows look down on you if you are looking up the staircase, which I find to be really creepy. I could not cover Maine and not talk about some haunted lighthouses. Maine has over 60 lighthouses along its jagged coastline and some of its islands. And there are claims that some of these lighthouses are very haunted. Many paranormal experts believe that moving water creates energy. Also, energy is held in rocks that have been warmed by the sun, and it's believed that ghosts can use this energy to manifest. The Penobscot River empties into the Atlantic Ocean at the large and deep Penobscot Bay. The deep 
Bay is known for fantastic fishing and boating. About 23 lighthouses were built along its waters. A few of these lighthouses are considered to be haunted. One of them is Marshall Point Light Station and Museum at the town of Point Clyde. In 1832, the first lighthouse was built here. A new tower was built in 1858 closer to the water's edge. Lightning struck and destroyed the first keeper's house in June of 1859, and a new house was built by November the same year. This lighthouse was made famous by a scene from the movie Forrest Gump. Forrest runs up the ramp to the lighthouse at the end of his cross-country run. The museum is located in the restorer's keeper's home. The ghost stories here seem to focus on the lightkeeper's house. However, the only actual story I have been able to find involves the road to the lighthouse station. Apparently, a boy named Ben Bennett accidentally came upon some rum runners in the early 1900s during the Prohibition era. The rum runners chased Ben through the woods, caught him, and then killed him. They left him alongside the road so that no one would find out what they were doing. People have claimed to see the ghost of a young teenager running along the road, especially on foggy nights. Some people say that they have also seen one of the rum runners. He is described as having a dark beard with black boots. He is holding a weapon of some kind and they see him while running alongside the road. Owl's Head Lighthouse near Rockland, Maine has some interesting stories. The first lighthouse was built here in 1825 and was replaced in 1852. On December 22nd of 1850, there was a terrible storm. A small schooner was anchored at nearby Jameson's Point, and the captain had gone ashore, but Richard Ingram, the first mate, Seaman Roger Elliott, and a female passenger named Ida Dyer remained on the ship. Mrs. Dyer was engaged to Ingram at this time. Around midnight, the storm became so violent that the cables anchoring the vessel snapped. The ship seemed to break apart, so Elliot left the ship to climb over icy rocks to try to reach shore. He reached the road to the lighthouse just as the keeper had been driving by in his sleigh. A rescue party found the schooner and went on board. They found Dyer and Ingram inside a block of ice. The block was taken to the kitchen of the keeper's house and miraculously, the couple was brought back to life after a few hours. Another true story from this lighthouse is of Keeper Harmon's dog named Spot. They lived at the lighthouse in the 1930s. Spot would bite and pull the rope that rang the fog bell when boats were coming near. He would ring the bell until the skipper answered with a toot of the ship's horn. Spot's favorite skipper was Stuart Ames, who brought mail to the lighthouse, and whenever he came, he always brought a treat for Spot. One stormy night, the fog bell could not be heard, and Spot did not get a signal from the mail boat. So Spot ran to the edge of the rocks and began barking, and he barked and barked until he finally heard the mail boat's horn. Thanks to Spot, Captain Ames was able to figure out where he was, and it kept him from crashing onto the rocks. Spot was a hero, and he was buried somewhere on the side of the hill near where the old fog bell once stood. The lighthouse itself has a few ghost stories. There is a ghost called Little Lady who can be found in the kitchen. People have heard doors slamming and silverware rattling. Her presence seems to bring peace to those present. It is assumed that she is the wife of one of the keepers who loves it here so much that she decided never to leave. Another ghost seems to be one of the old keepers. A young daughter of a keeper who lived at Owl's Head in the 1980s had an imaginary friend who she described as a bearded man wearing a blue coat and a seaman's cap. She would also remind her parents to turn on the foghorn 
Longhorn about 10 to 15 minutes before fog actually rolled in. Whenever her parents would ask her how she knew the fog was coming, she would always say, my friend told me. So maybe her imaginary friend wasn't so imaginary after all. Another thing that happens here is mysterious footprints often appear after a rain or snowfall. The prints look like that they are from work boots and they lead only in one direction. They go up the ramp, up the stairs, and lead to the tower. Another strange claim is that brass has been polished and lenses cleaned way before the light keepers go up to the tower to do the tasks. Some think that this is the ghost of an old light keeper, possibly the same man that the little girl saw. He also might be the one who lowers the thermostat, which keeps the place pretty cold. For my final lighthouse, I've chosen Seguin Island Light Station at the mouth of the Kennebec River. The first lighthouse here was approved and commissioned by George Washington. The first tower was built in 1795. A second tower was constructed in 1819, and the current tower that resides was built in 1857. The main ghost story of this lighthouse is tied to a keeper from the mid-1800s and his wife. Apparently, she was rather bored staying at the lighthouse, so the keeper bought her a piano. Unfortunately for both of them, sheet music for only one song came with the piano. His wife played the song over and over until it drove the keeper insane. In his fit of insanity, he grabbed an axe, went to the piano, and chopped it to bits. Then he turned on his wife and killed her with the axe. Sometime later, he came out of his crazed state and realized what he had done. In a fit of grief, he took his own life. People report hearing spooky piano music being played to this day. Another spirit at the lighthouse may be a young girl who supposedly died here and is buried near the lighthouse. People have seen the little girl skipping and playing on the island, but when they approach her, she vanishes into thin air. Finally, there is a story from a Coast Guard official who spent the night at the lighthouse in 1985. The lighthouse was being closed at this time and the official was there to remove furniture from the keeper's house. A spirit that seemed to be a former keeper appeared to him during the night. He was dressed in oilskins and cried out, don't take the furniture, please leave my home alone. After yelling this at the official, he disappeared. It seems like the ghost got the last laugh, however, because there was an unexplained accident the next day that caused the boat full of the furniture to sink. Maine is a beautiful and interesting state. It has a rich history, which leads to many paranormal stories. Maine seems like a wonderful place to go check out, and I know that someday I would love to visit Maine, and I hope that one day you will too. I hope that more people will start checking out smaller historic towns and places, because while cities are great, small towns can be hidden gems, both for history and the paranormal. Thank you all so much for joining me today as I covered haunted locations found in the state of Maine. I would love to thank Tracy for suggesting this. I had a lot of fun learning all about the history and especially the paranormal here. And I hope that you guys had fun and enjoyed this episode. I hope that I got a lot of the names correct that I named like the rivers and the Native American tribes back there. But if I got any of them wrong, sorry about that. I try really hard to find videos on YouTube to know exactly how to pronounce things, but sometimes I can't 
can't find the information, so I have to use Google Translate, which does not always do a good job, especially on names. But again, thank you all so much for joining me today. I hope that you guys had fun, and I hope that you all have a great Christmas. This is coming out a few days before Christmas, so I hope that you are going to be able to hang out with your friends and family and have a very healthy and safe Christmas. If you would like to keep up to date on what I'm doing and new episodes coming out, you can always uh, join me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I have links to all of those down below in the show notes, and I also have a link to my Patreon page if anyone is interested. So again, thank you all so much for coming today. I can't wait to be back here real soon with another episode because we are going to talk about some lore and hauntings in Nova Scotia. This is another listener suggestion episode, and I'm so excited because while I have done one location in Canada, it was the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I didn't really need to do any actual history of Canada itself. So now I will be digging into the history of Canada, and I am very excited because I I don't know much about the whole history of Canada, even though they're my neighbor to the north. I still don't know a lot of history. And you guys know how much I love learning about something that I know nothing about. So I am super excited. So again, thank you all so much for joining me today. I hope you have a great Christmas. I can't wait to see you guys back here real soon on another episode of Historically Haunted. Bye, everybody. <laughs>